Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks. I'm Justin Ogerede, Digital Policy Advisor at FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And I'm thrilled because for today's episode, we have with us Ivana Bartoletti. She's a privacy and ethics consultant at Deloitte, uh, where she supports businesses in privacy by design programs. She's very passionate about AI, data ethics and feminism. She co-founded the Woman Leading in AI Network. And of course, she's also chair of the Fabian Society, our partner foundation in the UK. Welcome, Ivana. Oh, thank you. And um, for today, we'll discuss, of course, AI, data, and I'm really thrilled to learn more about the insights of Ivana. She just published a book called An Artificial Revolution uh, that really goes in-depth on all these topics. Uh, but before that, perhaps let's discuss a little bit about the whole debate, which happens in the UK, but also across Europe, on apps and their alleged potential to help us do contact tracing and kind of reduce the spread of the coronavirus because i have the feeling that this debate is kind of instructive for the wider debate around technology and the belief we have in the solutions of apps the, the power of, of companies such as google and app apple which have been really prominent in this debate um ivana what, what do you think about this all well thank you so much first of all for having me here with you today and so much to talk about and yours is such an interesting question um i think everyone has been talking about this apps the idea that we download an app on our phone and that is part of a strategy to exit the lockdown and yes there's been a lot of concerns around it and a lot of people across Europe have been raising their concerns about what's going to happen when my data are used with me using the downloading and using the app um will this be something that i choose to use or Will this be something that I must use, for example, if I want to return to work? And it's a really interesting debate. And it is, as you were saying so correctly, because it is emblematic of so much around technology right now. The idea that the so-called techno solutionism, the idea that we are spending so much time discussing these apps, whether they are a small part of a much bigger strategy. But to an extent, because we are talking about technology, then we live in an era where it's so easy to rely on techno solutionism and basically say, oh yes, technology will solve the problems and even problems that have not necessarily a technological solution, but a public health one and a political one. So whether we don't really know if digital tracing will work or not, and I say, to be honest, I say, if biologists, if epidemiologists tell us that tracing is important, both the human tracing and the digital one, then I say, yes, we should go ahead. But we need to see the evidence that it works. And once we agree that we want to use it, then I think it's really important to say, well, you know, do these apps respect people's privacy? Because people have actually right to be worried. After what we've seen over the last 10 years, 20 years, we've seen the best of technology. 
But we've also seen the worst of it with Cambridge Analytica, with data harvesting, which has really put the people's trust in technology at risk. So people are worried and that's fine. The issue is, where is the oversight? Where is the transparency and how can we achieve that? The good thing in all this is that despite we are in the middle of a pandemic, we are talking about privacy and we are talking about ethics. And this means that these things are so embedded in our being European citizens and uh, privacy is and, and ethics. They are constitutional values, us being Europeans. So it's, it's, I think it's a good, healthy debate that we're having. The important thing is to really be conscious about what happens next. Thanks a lot, Ivana. And I couldn't agree more. And Anita, it has been kind of not enlightening, but I, I feel a bit relieved to see that there's so much debate around it right now. Also, like good initiatives popping up, especially in the UK, on a decentralized apps that would not, you know, have centralized data storage. So to kind of have privacy prefer- preserving principles right built into the technology, into the app. Uh, and also like initiatives to kind of create apps that are compatible across borders. Uh, so there's also been some European cooperation on this. So I think that's quite uh, quite good to see happening. Um, at the same time, I feel that the focus has always been on privacy. And I think that's important. Uh, but me being Dutch, you know, the answer in the Netherlands is always, yeah, but I have nothing to hide. So why should I care? And I think that also in your book, you highlight that privacy as an individual right, the idea of privacy as an individual right, you know, to be left alone, uh, that's not a sufficient way to look at these issues. And not just when we talk about uh, data, but especially when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence. Could, could you perhaps elaborate a little bit on that? You are so right on this. I mean, the, um, I've been in privacy law for a long time, and I have to say I've, I've felt uncomfortable for a lot of it. First of all, because the, the idea of privacy as an individual value, which is all around, you know, um, my own data. And people sometimes when I say to them that I work in privacy law, they start saying, oh, you must be very conscious about your personal information and protecting your personal data. And I feel, in quite honesty, I feel so saying, well, actually, I'm not that interested to my own my own data. What I'm interested in is privacy as a collective value. And if you think about this pandemic, that has really shown us how interconnected we all are, how interdependent we all are, and how my well-being relies on your health and your well-being. Therefore, you know, the big questions has become how can we achieve public health benefit without sleepwalking into a surveillance state, without then COVID data today becoming surveillance data tomorrow, where all this information become used for something much more, much darker and in this the so-called repurposing of data. And, you know, people are worried and, and it's fine to be worried about it because we have seen these things happening. I mean, with Cambridge Analytica, nobody thought that research data was then going to be used for political purposes and for to form part of this sort of manipulation, digital manipulation, which is our digital ecosystem. So um, the issue with privacy is that, and I think this is very much of a progressive cause that we need to embrace, is really what does privacy mean in the age we live in? The idea that privacy is all about control over one's data, is, is, I just find it, to be honest, that doesn't stand in the society we live in. 
how can you expect individuals to go through pages of privacy notices or having to decide whether they consent or not to the use of their information? The idea of privacy as we know it, which is consent-based, the idea of the illusion of control, where um, you have, allegedly, you have control over your data, uh, whether you need to read a privacy notice and decide whether you agree or not to the per- the processes of the, the processing of the information. Well, I think this is the time to really rethink what privacy means in the age we live in, especially ha- as we move to connected devices, smart homes, smart cars. We're not, we can't expect individuals to navigate the online and offline ecosystem always with the ability to read what happens to their data. We've got to build a system that is based on trust, that is based on transparency, but where we rethink the concept of personal data as not something that we own individually, but we think of personal data as the greatest public and collective asset. And I think we've got to do this because otherwise we won't be able to harness the value data that we've got out there. But at the same time, to really say we can't put all this pressure on the individuals because that really makes the life of big tech much easier than it is. The onus has got to be on them. It's got to be on them to create systems that are transparent and reliable. But it cannot be on the individuals. Otherwise, I think we are, instead of being controlled, we have actually been deceived with an illusion of control and illusion of ownership we, that we really don't have. I fully agree on, on, on kind of broadening the notion of privacy into something collective. And that's a frustration that I that I felt a lot when uh, when looking at, you know, the rules that we have in place right now. So, for example, under the, under the general data protection regulation as an individual, uh, you you can you, you have a certain number of data rights, but to be frank, even myself, I've been too lazy to actually make use of those. So you know, it can be that the solution is as an individual to stand up to uh, huge international uh, companies uh, to kind of safeguard your rights, you know, and and preserve some measure of autonomy. So I feel also the notion of autonomy is is a, is a really powerful one. It would be good if you could explain a little bit why this becomes so important. Um, with what we call artificial intelligence. So let's say automated decision-making. Because I feel for many people, this is kind of abstract and difficult to grasp. So, you know, for example, when I discussed at European level, the need for new rules uh, to govern automated decision-making, they say to me, yeah, but I mean, there have been many automated decisions uh, in the past, you know, essentially everything that's in an Excel sheet, uh, you know, that can be used for automated decisions in a way at, at, at local level, at government level. Now it's a bit faster, but perhaps it's even uh, better than humans taking these decisions because humans are also biased. Uh, but I feel we put in place really a manipulation and prediction infrastructure that really changes the autonomy we have as individuals. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I feel you have a lot of good examples uh, of the risks uh, that, you, that you expound upon in your book. Thank you. So I think I just want to make three points around this because you are going to, you're really touching on so the challenges that we have. And and you are correct in say that when we talk about this with a lot of people, they say, well, actually, humans are biased. And so why do we worry so much about AI? So I just wanted to make three points. The first one is that we've got an issue. And the issue is that when people in general think about AI, they immediately think about Terminator. They immediately think of the massive 
to the, the robot, which has got a human-like intelligence, which is going to take over the world. And I always struggle with this because I want people to understand that, to be honest, we shouldn't be worried about this right now. We should be worrying about what tech and, and algorithmic driven decisions are able to do right now and not focus on what Terminator and uh, and the so-called AGI, which is the general intelligence, will be able to do 20, 30 years down the line, if ever. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. We've got to get to pe- people to understand that these things are already here with us. Um, and uh, artificial intelligence has been going on for decades. Um, but now, because of the the amount of data that we've got at our disposal and artificial intelligence has the and machine learning in particular has the capability to scale up a lot of, of the situations and the inequalities that we see in society right now. So the first point is we should worry about that now and not necessarily about the future because we need to lay the foundations of, of uh, right now. The second thing is AI is and machine learning in particular, they are based on data. And data is not the neutral thing that a lot of people think about. We live under the illusion that because data is telling us something, that it has to be true. There is nothing more unreal and nothing more wrong than this, because data is not neutral. Data is a picture of the structural inequality of society over the last hundreds of years. Because data represents society as it is. And society has it been. And even the decision of collect some data and disregard some other data is a decision that somebody has made. So there is already a power imbalance between the person who is on the data set and the person who has not been placed on a data set. This is really important because data driven societies, they are not neutral. They don't make decisions which are better or neutral unless there is human intervention to mitigate those structural inequalities of society. And I'll give you an example about it. Let's say you are a bank and you really want to use algorithmic driven systems to identify, to decide whether somebody can have access to a loan or not, or whether somebody can have a particular limit on a credit card, on how much their limit, how high their limit can be. Now, if we use data to inform that decision, then the data that we will have at our disposal will show that till now, women are less than men. That means that when all this data is fed into the algorithm, then the output of that I call it machine or the algorithm, will reflect the data that has been ingested into it. And which means that, for example, as it happened with the Apple credit card, the credit given to a female will be lower than the credit given to a male. So, and the same will happen with many other circumstances, many other examples. One of the one of these examples, for example, could be um, um, HR, human resources. So, for example, what happened with Amazon was that they were almost ready to roll out a system that was replacing a human HR department. And they had an AI system which was collecting and processing and choosing CVs, curriculum veto. 
But that machine was only choosing male CVs. And that it happens sometimes because the data that is used replicates the stereotypes of society today. Or, for example, um, and there are loads of, loads of examples about it. And um, one of them, for example, is facial recognition and the difficulty of recognizing um, black women's faces. Um, and that, again, is an issue of the data available that has been fed into the system. So what is the problem with AI? It's not that humans are not biased. Of course they are. The problem with AI is that that bias can become stereotype and the stereotype can become prejudice because the potential of these automated decisions embedded in an unaccountable, obscure way across public and private sector is the potential to scale up the structural inequalities of society. And this is very important and this is where we need to intervene. And the, re the way to intervene is technological, obviously. There are systems to overcome these issues that have been developed, but it's also very difficult to automate fairness. A technological fix will not be enough. What is necessary is the clear decisions of those involved to make sure that the output does not reflect society as it is now. Only if we do that, we are able to have technology that improves our life. Whether we need regulation and how far this regulation have to go, that is a very, very complex matter. I do actually like the European Commission approach to this, which is let's do a fitness test and let's see how much of the current legislation is sufficient and how much we need to introduce new regulation, because obviously we don't want to stifle innovation. However, I would say one thing. If there is one beauty around the European yeah. Union, and I, I'm Italian, but live in Britain, so very sad that we're leaving the EU, uh -huh. is if there is one beauty, is the idea that we can set standards a global level. For as much as the GDPR is a complex piece of legislation, which probably came too late, has been a driving force for higher privacy standards across the world. So I would like to see Europe leading on this as well, because I think this is where we can turn our AI work into competitive advantage as well. And it's by setting limits um, and exploring how we can harness the value of this technology, but at the same time, making sure that we are restrained by human and European values. Uh, thanks, Ivana. That's a really comprehensive overview of, of what, what you think should be done. I, I love the point you made about, uh, you know, not looking into future hypotheticals. Uh, that really that really reminded me of, um, I think there was this European Parliament resolution of 2017, where they kind of referenced Asimov's laws for, uh, you know, uh, three points that robots, principles that robots should adhere to mentioning killer robots, et cetera, et cetera, instead of looking at the concrete issues that are already in play now. Second, you really mentioned the fact that that bias, of course, and its correction is important, but it also it will not be sufficient. So we should really look into the politics of this. Uh, and I'm, of course, pleased to hear that uh, you support the European Commission approach. I'm, I'm a little bit less uh, optimistic there. You know, when we look back, I think that the GDPR is now proving to be really instrumental in terms of setting new standards at global level. 
at the same time, I feel it has been so long in the making, mm. and and we've seen really quite quite a bit of damage when you see you know the social media environment that we have nowadays, uh, and I think that's kind of underreported in a way. Also, the damage on young children, people's attention span, etc. So I think it it came royally late. Mm. Uh, so I'm a little bit skeptical uh, looking forward. Um, what I do think, and it's something that you also mentioned in the book, is that like a lot of the concrete initiatives we've seen like the, the good actions being taken to force big tech to hold them to account actually come from workers. So you had the Google walkouts. I think it was, what, late 2018. What, what do you think about that? And are, are there ways to kind of uh, boost worker power? Because they seem to be a really key driver into kind of, uh, you know, kind of shaping the consciousness of, of, of these big tech firms. Uh, what, what are your views on that? I, I couldn't agree more about workers. So um on the um, legislation side, I just wanted to say one thing, because I agree with you. The, the biggest worry that we've got is that things um, we don't take action on time. And and I think that we've learned from GDPR and, the, the, and from privacy law in general, that we've learned that if we don't intervene, then we just let the ecosystem go completely wild. Um, and this is what happened to our digital ecosystem. And and you're right. I mean, one of the things that worry me the most is is autonomy, is the value of human agency. And to to give you an example, this is one of the things that, that I'm really really concerned about is is online recommendations. But they really worry me because I always think, are they taking my autonomy away? Um, I have a teenage son. Um, he uses Amazon and to buy book and and other things. And then, you know, what happens if you read a book um, and then you get a recommendation for a second book, then you get a recommendation for a third book. By the end of the month, you will have only read what Amazon wanted to read. Yes. And, and this is really troubling me because life is all about experiencing coincidence, the people you meet, seeing things through your body, and and this this erosion of human agency really goes to the heart of the value of liberty and how the digital ecosystem, which has become a an architecture of of manipulation, to be honest, mm-hmm. I really worry about what this what's happening to to, to younger people. Uh, and not just younger people, to everybody. So I just wanted to say I worry about not acting on time. And once algorithmic driven advertising becomes even more unaccountable than it is now, once values become to get embedded into machines and once automated decisions become much less to recognize and to investigate, Um, then I really worry that it's going to be too late. So I agree with you on that. Um, And this is where the workers and their power becomes crucial. One of the things that I that I is not strong enough in the European Commission approach to AI is the role of employees. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we should include in ethics, we should include the possibility of employees to um, voice concerns around what the technology they're producing is used for and not necessarily having to do so through the whistleblowing route. Um, it's really important that things happen with workers and not without them. Um, and the workers across the world are showing 
a socially conscious approach to technology. And this is really important. Uh, even in younger generation, we're more interested in working for a startup, working for the common good rather than joining Facebook. Um, so, but I think we've got to make sure that the only accountability doesn't come from workers yeah. um, who put themselves at risk, lose their job to do the work that authorities, legislation and should be doing. And that's what we're seeing at the moment is the courage of these workers who are bringing to life the dirt and the dark side of technology. And I think that's not enough. That should be some accountability and transparency. Um, otherwise, we'll just be relying on their goodwill and investigative journalism. And and that's not the way to go. I, I, I fully agree. Um, and, and I feel we're, we're coming close to the end of the podcast. But there's one question I'm really I've been dying to ask you. And it's something I'm, I'm struggling with myself. And it's it's uh, when you talk about regulation, and I think this is this is a problem that has dogged the internet, you know, since the 90s, is the fact that, of course, the internet is this global infrastructure. Uh, but of course, you know, the people making the laws are still very much based on a specific territory. And this has, of course, always been a point of tension. Uh, and now it's really coming to a head, I feel. And I feel from reading the book that you're kind of a committed internationalist. And I'm also, I want, where possible, of course, to have global solutions. But I feel often it's so difficult so that it's better or at least more feasible to go forward at, at a regional level. Uh, but you also made a really, really interesting comparison between, uh, you know, when we look at AI as a technology and nuclear power, nuclear energy, atomic energy as, as a technology and how dare we have been able globally as a community to come together and, you know, set set an international regime for that. In this case, a non-proliferation treaty and a whole range of other, other arms treaties. Of course, uh, right now, that's also unraveling. But but how do you see that? And, and related to that, I would like to ask you one question. How do you see Facebook's uh, recent announcement in that light where they, you know, they, they announced that they would set up a global kind of free speech uh, body that would look into free speech issues and content moderation on the Facebook platform with uh, really kind of a global uh, membership, I think, uh, or at least, well, now mostly Western. So I see Alan Rutscher is on there from The Guardian, former Guardian uh, editor, former Danish prime minister, Helle Tonning-Schmidt. Do you think that's more of a fig leaf, or like like a, a way to stall regulation? Or you think that could be the outlines of some kind of a global governance regime that could actually work? Sorry, this is a difficult question, but just 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 your thoughts would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it's an interesting it's an, an interesting element. I am extremely concerned actually by nationalism, which we are seeing in in data with data sovereignty. With you yeah. know, we are. I'm extremely concerned, and also I make strongly the link between sort of um, data um, and the online. The, the, the architecture of manipulation, how it's been fueling populism and, and nationalism and, and all these things, we've got to have the courage to see them connected. Um, I do think I make the comparison with nuclear because AI has got the potential to do something extremely good. And I am I'm a big supporter of what the potential, for example, in healthcare, the, the fact that you can detect cancer way before it materializes. And there is, a, there is some really good potential in there, mm -hmm. but it could also be extremely bad. And automated weapons is a clear example. And this is where I think the, the international governance should be in place. I mean, automated weapons should not be 
permitted in the first place because you cannot outsource the decision of whether to kill or not. And you shouldn't be killing, but if you're in war, that is where the human responsibility has to be paramount. That is my my view on it. And I worry about the fact that we need to do a massive, we will need a massive global effort to really look at the geopolitical implications of of, um, AI, of the evolution of robotics, automated weapons, uh-huh. and even of the of the um, of the accumulation of of data and the effect that this is having at at global level. Um, so I'm a committed internationalist. I do think that we are in a very very dangerous time, and we're seeing politically. I mean, I see in the UK with with, with Boris Johnson in the US and and in with, with Trump and and Bolsonaro, and there's so, uh-huh. and so many examples of of all this, and this is sort of the problem that we have right now, and. What will happen after and within this pandemic is yet to be known. Um, it could be that we'll become even more national and nationalistic and, and that we have been. But there is something in here which we really need to work on, which is how do we invest in a new generation? And I don't mean necessarily anagraphically, but a new political generation of people who rebuild the sense of global governance. And and um, and this is this is sort of to me the biggest challenge that we've got ahead of us in terms of governance. I am not opposed to self-regulation in itself. Um uh-huh. Because I do think that um, if an oversight board is done properly with the proper power to stop something, to be accountable, to report to the public, I think it's part of a solution. One thing I do not believe at all is the the idea that self-regulation, self um, um, uh, imposed sort of ethics or can replace um legal structures legal legislation and formal oversight and the power of regulators um these things could go together uh they could go hand in hand but there is no self-regulation without the power of the law and i do think that you know this is the time where um quick fast but in a clever way we should be thinking about um, what we um, put in place to make the most of new technologies whilst really preventing the harm that could impact societies in the long term. Uh, Ivana, I feel like I'm turning into an automaton myself because every time you speak, I afterwards feel I can only say I fully agree. Um, <laughs> it was a pleasure to have you here on the Talks podcast. Thank you. And, um, to you. I understand that your book will be published on the 20th. Yes. So the launch, we're having an event in the evening, um, which will be um, a Zoom event. So everybody's uh, welcome to join. It's um, a conversation with a brilliant Guardian journalist called John Grace. Excellent. And if people want to follow you and your work, where where should they where uh, should they go? Twitter or LinkedIn. Twitter is easy. It's Ivana Bartoletti, and LinkedIn um, easy to to follow there. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, success uh, with your further work. And uh, good luck with the book launch next uh, uh, on the 20th. And uh, hope we can invite you again soon on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks to you. Really nice to join you. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, 
Do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.